the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman versus a steak sandwich of Eargs. There's a battle worth eschewing the drive-through for. Bookie Ravens and Shattered Shields, plus part 17 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. On the podcast this time, we talk with Larry Correa about his new book, Monster Hunter Nemesis. This is a great interview with Larry, all about the fifth entry in the Monster Hunter series, which is now out in hardcover. Larry is an ebullient guy, and it's a great discussion. There are some spoilerish things in the interview, if you listen to it slantwise, as it were. I don't really think there are any spoilers, but it could be argued, so let's call it a two on the Monaghan spoiler scale, a scale that, of course, goes up to 11. And we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. It's a Correa show, all right, but first, here's the news. There are a couple of new eARCs now available at BainEbooks.com. An eARC is the burst of communication from a faster-than-light alien spacecraft sent forth into the ether, communication that is inaccessible to all but the ears of infants, who copy the sound the best they can in hopes of warning their parents of a coming invasion. And you thought they just had something, and you thought they just needed changing. No, 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 that's not right. An eARC is actually an electronic advanced reading copy. These are the uncorrected proofs of a book delivered to you in ebook form. We sell these direct to some fairly eager readers, why, you may ask, but the real question is when, of course, which is usually about three months to four months before the book is available at booksellers. If you're waiting for the next book in your favorite series, we want you to have it. If you want to check out a new author, we want you to have that as soon as possible, too. Hence the Bain eARC program. The aliens aren't invading. Probably. Now available is a debut novel in a new series, The Sword of Michael by Marcus Wynn. This is a contemporary fantasy featuring a shaman adventurer who has ticked off a powerful sorcerer. Marcus, the author, is a martial arts and firearms consultant to law enforcement as well as an author. So there's some authentic stuff going on in the action scenes herein. Also, you've got to love his main character's spirit guides, a Lakota war chief, and Bert, a spirit raven who channels an old bookie from the Bronx. Also out is Shattered Shields, edited by Jennifer Brozick and Brian Thomas Schmidt. This is a military high fantasy story anthology, a great cross of genre motifs, I've always thought. High fantasy and mighty conflicts go hand in hand. These stories include more than just epic landscapes and characters. They also feature epic battles. And there are writers like Elizabeth Moon, Glenn Cook, and our Bane Slushmaster General, Gray Reinhardt, has a story in there. Also a story by Larry Correa, a high fantasy story. It's part of his new high fantasy series that he's working on, and he'll talk about that more in the interview as well. Plus many more great authors. It's an excellent anthology. Both The Sword of Michael and Shattered Shields are now available as eARCs at BaneEbooks.com. Get them while they're just off the press and electronically crackling. I want to welcome Larry Correa back to the podcast. Hi, Larry. Hey, Tony. Larry Correa is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series, as well as urban fantasy hard-boiled adventure saga The Grim Noir Chronicles with a new entry, Warbound, uh, or the last entry, Warbound, nominated for a Hugo Award, by the way. Uh, many of you out there know that we've been serializing the first book in the Grimnor Chronicles, Hard Magic, here on the podcast. We're already a good ways in, and uh, it's really lots of fun. It's, it's read by Bronson Pinchot, and it's, just, it's a fantastic audiobook. 
with Mike Kapari. He's the author of Military Adventure Dead Six and Swords of Exodus. And out now is the fifth book in the Monster Hunter series. That one is called Monster Hunter Nemesis. It's now out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. Larry, so Franks, he's shown up in the previous Monster Hunter books, but this time you've made him the main character in Monster Hunter Nemesis. He's not exactly cuddly. What what makes Frank's hero material for this book? Um, well, a couple things. He had a really big backstory that I always wanted to get into. I've had it planned since the first book, but I couldn't really get into that otherwise. And uh, after doing Monster Hunter Alpha, which was about uh, a, a different character than the main series, and pulling that off, I thought, you know, I want to do a Frank's book. Yeah. And uh, he's not really good hero material because he's... Um, He's sullen and morose and doesn't talk much. So it's really hard to have a point-of-view protagonist that doesn't like anyone or anything and doesn't talk. <laughs> but um, it was a challenge, but I had a lot of fun with it. He's actually a really interesting character, and he's got a lot of depth to him, and he's got a really cool story, and I, I, I think we, uh, I was able to pull that off, and I think it came together pretty good. So. He uh, he's kind of an anti-hero, I guess you could say, because he's the hero of the story, but he's not particularly heroic. But um, he makes up for it with just sheer. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. He just doesn't give a crap about anything and uh, just kind of bludgeons his way to success. <laughs> Had yeah. a lot of fun with it, um, and I hope that comes through. I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, it's um. It... That's I mean identifying with 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 a character that can uh, you know that just decides to not give up is is like a terminator in his way just absolutely tenacious and even when he's when he's out, absolutely outmatched he just won't stop uh, he's a lot of fun yeah and he never ever ever it just doesn't even understand giving up his his main thing is he does not fail missions so if he's given a mission the mission will succeed. That's basically his thing, and he'll do whatever it takes to make the mission succeed, um, including going to some pretty ridiculous lengths at times and doing some pretty, pretty horrible things. But he's not really burdened with morality like, uh, like most of us. Well, his name is Frank's, um, which maybe gives away something about his monsterness. Um, it, what's what's Frank's relationship to Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein story? Oh, he's. He is, uh, so spoiler alert, um, but yeah, he's totally the Monster Hunter uh, International Universe's version of Frankenstein. Uh, in, the, in the book, in the series, I mean, that's not revealed until the second book, but um, basically what it is is that uh, the, the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley was based upon a true story. She got a lot of the facts wrong, but um, there was this creature created by a mad scientist um, and, uh, he basically, uh, over hundreds of years, he becomes, uh, Agent Franks when he comes to America as a Hessian mercenary, uh, winds up getting blown up by a cannonball while fighting George Washington, uh, is taken as an abomination in front of Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Franklin winds up cutting a deal with him, and Agent Franks, or Franks has worked for the United States of America ever since, and, uh, so in my Monster Hunter world, he's, a, he's an agent of the Monster Control Bureau. So the first couple books, you don't realize who he is until there's a, a scene in the second one where you think he gets killed, and then he comes back later, and you kind of figure out what he is at the point when you realize he's using body parts borrowed from other people who have died during that book. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a fun, he's a fun character. He's, uh, he's a lot of fun to write. He, uh, <laughs> He's not a big fan of the novel Frankenstein. <laughs> I don't want to get into it too much, but yeah. he finds that character far too emo. So uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, Frank's is a boy. So um, since you created this fairly indestructible dude, um, what kind of monster do you send him send up against him, or what makes a worthy opponent for Frank's? Uh. Pretty much, the, the thing I do with Franks is that he, he has a couple purposes working for the government. And uh, in the Monster Hunter universe, you know, monsters, the existence of monsters are kept secret. There's a reason for that. He's used for intimidation purposes and the jobs that, uh, you know, human beings would be squeamish about. But then actual combat, because he's virtually indestructible and, and repairable, they can throw him against everything. And in the book, I have um, several times, uh, I, I don't want to get too much away, but... 
he faces many different opponents are thrown at him. Uh, try, different things try to take him down. At one point, there's kind of a, a SWAT team of monsters put together by a different uh, entity to take Franks down. He uh, fist fights an ogre onto a subway train and then fights a werewolf. And, and it's just... He kicks a he kicks a gnome over a fence. Also, I'd like to add. <laughs> oh man, the gnome scene is good. Well, it's because in Monster Hunter Vendetta, I had that great scene where the main character Owen fights uh, a bunch of gnomes. Oh yeah, one of the great scenes in the Monster Hunter series. Yeah, it's a hilarious fight scene. And plus, you know, he just get Owen just gets worked. And so I wanted to establish that Franks is way more way more badass. And I wanted to establish that. So Frank's interaction with the gnomes was dramatically different. So as soon as the gnome starts giving him lip, he just kicks him over the fence. Yeah. And all that's left is a gold chain in his in a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> and all the other gnomes are like, Oh crap, it's Frank's yeah. I just wanted to do that just to establish, you know, how different this character is. Yeah. Uh I mean there's no mercy, there's no hesitation, um, there's there's no squeamishness. It's just this gnome gave me lip. Boom. Yeah. And those gnomes give you a lot of lip because in the Monster Hunter universe they are they're gangsters and they run drugs or maybe the, maybe not drugs. Oh, there I'm sure if, I'm sure if it's illegal or illicit, <laughs> gnomes are involved somehow. <laughs> yeah. Gnomes are the gnomes are the shifty criminal underworld of the Monster Hunter universe. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I love writing gnomes. So to have Franks just beat the crap out of one was just hilarious. Excellent. Um, I introduced some new villains. I don't want to give too much away, but they come from Frank's backstory. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the book actually is when, uh, <laughs> well, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, excuse me, suppose, somebody who's not been on Earth for very long is trying to figure out how to, how to put gas into a car, um, <laughs> at, the gas, at the gas station. He's got the automated pump. He's got a credit card. He's trying to figure out how to use the machine. And, this, and he's just a creature of rage. Do you know the scene I'm talking about, Tony? Yes, yes, of course. Punching the, yeah. punching the gas pump. He's, he's read how to do it, but he only has book right. learning. Yeah, he has book learning. And he's like, no, stupid machine. I do not wish for a for a car wash. This is fuel. <laughs> he's just... Uh, good monsters, though. Yeah, so he has some good... Uh, that's the thing. If you have an almost indestructible protagonist, you've really got to up your ante on your antagonist. And so we bring out some pretty heavy hitters. And it gets... Uh, it gets pretty violent. Um, some of the fight scenes of this one are—they're are, pretty—they're uh, pretty harsh because uh, Frank's just doesn't mess around. Yeah, Frank's so, is very efficient. Let me ask you this: um, Frank's versus a Monster Hunter universe uh, master vampire, who comes out on top? Oh, that's a tough one. Depends on which one it is. Uh, depends on which master, because um, some are smarter than others. Uh, like for example, if it's Susan Shackelford. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't fight him head to head. I mean, Susan, Susan would probably win through treachery. Um, head to head, uh, like a straight up fight, my money's on Franks. Just uh, for for basically tenacity, they'd be faster than he was. That this is something he just doesn't quit, and he cheats too. He's not dumb. Yeah. So I'd be a good fight though. That would be a good fight. It would. Uh, master vampire against a human, humans can lose <laughs> unless you bring out artillery. The other thing that happens to Franks in the novel is that he develops as a character. We get some kind of touching moments with him. Um, did you know about some of the backstory that you bring out when you started writing the series, or did uh, you know what? Did you know that something would sort of humanize him in a way going into it, or did this come up while you're writing? Well, actually, some of the some of the basic idea for like his entire history that gets revealed in the book, uh, I knew that from the first one. I just didn't have a place to tell it. Um, some of the some of the humanizing elements, like his interaction with some of the other characters, th- that developed over time. Um, th- those are more recent. And part of what it was is, as I was writing this book, I realized you have an inhuman protagonist. You still need to be able to have some sort of way to to get him to be relatable to the readers. Um, and, and then when I started expanding that in, like the idea of Frank's having, um, uh, trying to avoid spoilers here, uh, Frank's having relations, <laughs> you know, and, uh, it enabled me to, to do some interesting things with him and to, and to, to make Frank's more human, even though he's not, 
I guess one of the things I said is like when I was writing Monster Alpha about a werewolf, uh, kind of the theme of that was what does it mean to be human when you're not? But, you know, the werewolf in that wanted to be human. He thought of himself as a human, but he wasn't. Whereas in Monster Hunter Nemesis, Agent Franks, you know, what does it mean to be a human when you just don't give a crap? I mean, he doesn't want to be human. He doesn't care. Um, but your readers, your audience, um, they're human. And uh, so when I started bringing in some of these touching elements and the, the things that, you know, Franks does have feelings. They're just, you know, very stunted, but they're there. And there's a couple moments that are kind of, I, I hate to say tear jerkers, but they, they wound even Franks. Well, things are foisted upon him, whether he wants to be human or not. Human things happen to him that he's got he's to gotta react to one way or another. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, speaking of, like, the moral universe of, uh, to put it that way, of, of what's going on in, in the books. So Frank's job um, for a lot of his history has been to fight the monsters, but also to intimidate people into not revealing um, that they exist. And, and like, and if t intimidation don't, doesn't work, taking it even farther. Um, now, that in the first book, when Owen is getting intimidated, that kind of bothered me. Why would this ever be okay to do to somebody, um, I thought. But there's a kind of end justifies the means argument to be made that I guess gets made here. Could, could you get into that uh, sort of quandary? Um, and that's one of the things. In the first book, I introduced the Monster Control Bureau. And, you know, they're doing all this shysty stuff to keep people silent about monsters. They intimidate people. They doctor evidence. Um, they will they will trump up charges and throw you in jail. Uh, or necessary, you know, every once in a while, they'll kill somebody if they won't shut up. And um, in the first book, you don't get their side of the story. You don't get their perspective as why they do what they do. But they do have a reason for it, which we get into as the series goes on. Um, and part of it is that uh, the way I've set up this universe, some, some of the factions of old evil things that want to take over, um, the more people believe in them, the more powerful they become. They basically they gain, uh, they gain worshippers, and as they gain worshippers, they gain more influence in our reality, the more they're able to intrude into our world. And so the Monster Control Bureau has been around for 100 years, and uh, most governments have some sort of equivalent that does the same thing because they have to keep the truth, uh, they have to keep the truth quiet to protect the world. Now, are they correct in their thesis that that is how it works? We don't actually know. Um, I mean, like, for example, the monster hunters think they're wrong. But <clears throat> the Monster Control Bureau, the government, they think they're right. And so one of the reasons Franks has this reputation of being like this heartless, you know, killer of, of anybody who gets out of line, is he doesn't, he, he doesn't have a soul to scar. So this is something horrible, you know, to, to do this horrible thing, um, to, to silence innocent people. The reason Frank's volunteers for that is that better, it's like his attitude is better me that can't be further down. I'm already irreparably damaged. I'm already damned. You guys aren't. So I'll do it. And he's just completely without mercy. Um, but it, it was fun to get into that a little bit. And I've had a uh, re recurring character for a long time is Agent Myers. Uh, yeah. The series yeah. starts out, he's kind of an antagonist. He, he's always an antagonist. But you find out why he does what he does. Um, and he's actually really good at his job. And he really believes in it. And so it may, you, at times you still hate him, but you understand why he does what he does. And that's one of the fun things about writing a series that's this long, is you get to really develop, you know, the motivations of other characters that would normally just be background characters. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I have a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun developing that whole. Because in the first book, a lot of people reading is like, "Well, you're just you just hate the government." <laughs> well, you no, know, you're only getting you're only getting the side of the story from the perspective of the people who've had to deal with the aftermath. You're not getting why they do what they do. And I've never answered the question, is, is, you know, are they doing it for the right reason? Well, they think they are, but I haven't actually got into what the actual repercussions of this are yet. I, I haven't planned out, but, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. we'll get to that. I can't give away too many spoilers yet. Well, Myers is, shows up in this book, and uh, we f we find that he's, uh, although he's still that, that hard-ass government uh, 
dude, there's there's worse people in the government. Um, and per, maybe the the real villain that Frank's uh, has to go up is uh, has to go up against is the uh, what is it called the the special forces unit, the unicorn. Oh, uh, special task force unicorn. Yeah. STFU. Which is headed up by this guy named Stricken, who's really pretty evil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is, um, um, I mean, for those of you that read Grim Noir, you know that one of my pet peeves is, um, totalitarianism, statism, um, total control. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very pro-freedom kind of guy. Um, that's just my personal philosophy. I, I like freedom. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Stricken represents Total control. This is a man that would, would have been comfortable in any tyrannical regime in the history of mankind. He would have made a really comfy place for himself. And there's always been people like him, and there always will be. He, um, he uses people. He's a manipulator. He's a, he's a chess master. Um, as the series goes on, you'll see several times where people think they have, uh, you know, they've beaten Stricken at his own game. But what they don't realize is that, yes, they won here, but he's several moves ahead. Um, he's a great he's a great villain because he's so Machiavellian. Um, even when, you know, he's outwitted on one front, he's got plans within plans within backup plans. And as you read Monster Hunter Nemesis, you kind of get a glimpse as to what his motivations are and what he's trying to accomplish. And then when you get to the end of it, you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> this is just... This is just the tip of the iceberg. And uh, even when the guy screws up, you know, he's got a backup plan. And, oh, well, you know, I failed here. I'm going to go work on this. And um, this is a person who will literally make a deal with the devil and uh, and, and does. Yeah. So um, He's also a, a pretty good smart Alec, <laughs> which I, the, the redeeming quality when you get to him is that he's interesting because you, you just want to see how he, like, dominates whoever he's talking to with smart aleck remarks. Oh, yeah, he's not. That's the thing. I, I, I don't like mustache twirling evil for the sake of mustache twirling evil. He's a, he's a jerk. I mean, the first time you meet him um, is uh, at the end of Monster Hunter Alpha. And uh, he's been monitoring. He found Earl Harbinger with satellite. You know, satellite monitoring is how he found the guy, where he's hiding now. And he's talking to him. And he's like, yeah, I've been watching with the satellite. And Earl just kind of instinctively just kind of like looks up and Chicken goes, it's in space, dumbass. You can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> He's just such a jerk to everyone. Um, He's smooth when he needs to be. But, um, okay, I, not too many spoilers, but do you remember the rabbit dog story from uh, Monster Hunter Nemesis where he's explaining to his people um, his strategy? Yeah. And he tells he tells a story from his childhood that sounds just absolutely horrific. Like, oh my gosh, did this guy really grow up that way? But then you realize you don't know. He could have just made that story up. That story might be true, or that story might be just a complete and utter fabrication to get his people to do what he wants them to do, or to sell uh, a narrative about himself. His people, you have no idea. Because he's just that much of a trickster. So, yeah, I, I enjoy writing Stricken. Yeah. One of the hallmarks of Larry Correa's uh, books is, is weaponry. Um, so what takes out of Frank's like being? Oh, man. Um, with Frank's being um, parts replaceable, he's still vulnerable to pretty much anything that would kill a human being, except he's just got redundant backup systems. So uh, the key to defeating a Frank's like being, as you know, we know there's more than one, um, is just basically breaking them down to the point they can't be repaired in time. Um, and as the, as the story progresses, we see, you know, Franks get shot repeatedly. Um, you know, smaller caliber things just poke a hole in him. He's like, you know, whatever. They just plug the hole, move on with life. Um, <laughs> we uh, get a lot of grenade action in this one for some reason. I, 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 I'm looking back on it. We've got a lot of 40 millimeter uh, going on in this one. Um, we, uh, let's see, what else? Got a lot of, lot of explosive use. I have a, a couple of my best friends are bomb techs. Um, so for, for when it comes to explosive device, I have great people to, uh, <laughs> to call upon. 
I think we got Moz Launcher going at one point. Uh, but we wound up using that just on regular people, which was kind of unfortunate. <laughs> um, gosh, a little bit of everything. Not uh, Frank's isn't a signature gun kind of guy. He's a um, he's a whatever is issued kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So Frank's installs his tools in a toolbox. Um, and one point I had him kill a guy with a crowbar, <laughs> which was pretty awesome. Uh, oh, 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 and I can't. I can't say too much about who shows up, but uh, Frank's winds up with a halberd. I got a little bit of everything in this in this one. A lot of a lot of government issued weaponry would, would be uh, the most common stuff in, in this particular book. But uh, yeah, uh, any, anything will take out Frank's if you can just keep him from his support of being able to escape and repair himself. Yeah, I guess it's the best technical answer. That's your key. Easier said than done. Yeah, because the guy is. Uh, yeah, because he's very uh, he's very hard to put down, and he's very stubborn. Um, uh, and so, and so when I'm putting him up against people with the same capabilities, you notice this, this Frank's tactic is just is just attrition. He doesn't let him escape, and he just he just takes him apart methodically. Um, and, and that's one fun thing of writing Frank's fight scenes is the psychology of Frank's is so methodical. There's no emotion at all. There's no fear. It just is what it is. So, so he's very analytical as he's breaking these guys down. He's just like, I'm going to take this out, I'm going to take this out, I'm going to take this out. And every opportunity to hurt something, he gives it to him, he, he hurts him. Um, and when he's hurt, um, what, what a, normal, uh, a normal character might slink away, he just doesn't stop, no matter how debilitating the injury is. Well, I can't give away too much, but I, I, I've been promising people since the second book, uh, you know, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. I've been promising people that since Monster Hunter Vendetta, and I finally I was finally able to give him Frankenstein versus the Wolfman, and uh, can't give away too much about about that fight. But on one side you have that perfect analytical, indestructible Franks, you know, the immovable object. Then I have the unstoppable force of Earl Harbinger. Um, oh man, I love that fight scene. Yeah. That fight scene was ridiculous. You know, just just pure animal savagery versus just you know, Franks, and uh, that fight scene was one of the more brutal ones I've ever done. Um, I really enjoyed that fight sequence. That was a good one. There's a lot of there's a lot of Frankenstein lore kind of lurking under the story that that pops up. Um, have you always been a Frankenstein fan? Yeah, actually, more the more the early uh, Universal monster movies than the book itself. I didn't read the book until high school, um, and. Uh, I, I kind of went in expecting, you know, the Boris Karloff, you know, awesome monster flick. And then I, and so when I read the book, I was like, huh, this is very, uh, very this is very literary and slow and talky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a great book. Uh, I mean, it's obviously captured the, the, the uh, imaginations of millions. But I would say as far as, like, the uh, culture of Franks, is more towards the uh, the the, more, the big uh, Universal monster flicks than it is the book itself. Uh, in fact, the book is kind of it was fun to make the book kind of a sore point for Frank's because his personality is so blunt and uh, straightforward and you know just simple. I mean, he's not dumb; he's very intelligent, but he's not a talky person. Whereas if you look at the monster in the books, it was very talky. And, and one of the things in the books was he learned. He learned language by, you know, like, um, like he spied on a family and learned language. Um, and, and then he, like, learned to read because he found a book in the forest, right? And so Frank makes fun of that. He's like, and so I actually have a scene where his creator was Conrad Dippel, not, not Victor Frankenstein, but, but Conrad Dippel trying to speak, uh, teach him to speak English. And it's, or, I'm sorry, German. He's trying to speak, teach him to speak German. Uh, and it's just a funny scene. Because he's just a, an arrogant, angry, mad scientist talking to this big, dumb creature. And, uh, and so I was able to work in the fire, you know, fire bad in that. Um, <laughs> those, were, those were very entertaining scenes for me to write. Um, so, yeah, I did read the book again to, 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 you know, bone up on my Frankenstein lore before that and then promptly tossed. 95% of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, a, he's, he's like this Byronic, uh, he's like this Byronic brooder in the book, and he, he spends a lot of time brooding, which Franks doesn't really do. He just, <laughs> he, 
you'd rather fight than brood, I guess. It's funny, brooding is just you you just it's his default until he's you know hurting something else. <laughs> yeah. I guess I mean you call him brooding, but he's not. It's not an emotional. You know, I'm so sad. You know, it's just it's like an engine idling on a truck. <laughs> yeah. One of the fun things about the, the book is by being in Frank's head. We can, you know, he gives he gives these incredibly taciturn, dry answers to like Owen and in, in the earlier books. Now we see like he's got all this complexity going through him, and then he, but he still says, "I'm not going to tell you. It's classified." Also, one of the things I want to do is because I was able to convey, I think, pretty well in the first couple of books that he is actually very smart, but he just doesn't talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my editing chores, one of the first things I do when I edit a monster Hunter novel. And I search through for every single line of dialogue from Frank's, and I cut half. Like if Frank has a, a sentence that has ten words, I change it to a sentence that has five, because um, you know he doesn't spend any extra currency here, and, and words are words are valuable. And so uh, I was able to, you know, people got the Frank's. There was a lot more going on behind behind those heavy lidded eyes, um, and so then I was able to get to the, you know, actual Frank's perspective. We get that. Oh man, I mean, his, he is super smart and he knows a lot. He just doesn't share, and he's not going to share, um, and he doesn't care. He doesn't want to. And so, um, you know, he might know the answer, but what he gives you is just going to be the shortest answer that he can get away with. Um, just because he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> but, but it's like kind of like that 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 line from the movie. You know, you can't handle the truth. And that's kind of the attitude Franks has as he goes through these adventures. Is they, they can't handle it. They don't get it, or they're not worthy to get it. Um, yeah. So writing Frank's dialogue is one of the most challenging things I've ever I've ever had to do as a, as a writer. Well, um, the little parts where it's you know directly from Frank's point of view, Frank's perspective, that those are challenging. Yeah. Uh, well, you pull it off, and it's it's often pretty amusing, Riley. Hey, Frank's treat. Say what? You pull it off, and it's often pretty amusing in a wry kind of way. Yeah, it was challenging because, uh, it, it, like, as a writer, if I treat my audience the way Frank treats the people he talks to, he wouldn't be able to read the book. <laughs> True enough. So I thought about like when I was doing the I was tra- okay, like the journal entry part. Um, I was thinking, why would Frank actually take the time to explain something? I had to come up with a reason why. That's how he came up with the testimony thing. Um, because if I wrote a journal-style Frank's book, it consists of, today was good, killed lots of stuff. <laughs> that would be the entry for the day. I, I think we ought to touch on this at least a little bit. There's been a lot of political rigmarole going on lately in the science fiction community and the country as a whole. And You don't hesitate to jump in on your blog and elsewhere uh, about this stuff. Yet, in the books, I don't really detect much... Uh, more than a general disdain for politicians in general, and who who doesn't have that? Can an American liberal or progressive enjoy the Monster Hunter series? Um, yeah, definitely. In fact, it, it's interesting to me because most of the people that that bash on my stuff as being political have never actually read it. Because the books themselves, the politics of the books are going to be consistent with whatever the point of view characters' politics are. Um, that's really what it comes down to. Um, obviously, like when I'm writing. When I'm writing stricken, so it's very pro-big government. I mean, um, now, in my personal life, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a libertarian, is what I am. I'm, 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 I'm a liberty-minded uh, Republican. I'm a registered Republican, but I'm, I'm very pro-liberty, very pro-freedom um, on, on pretty much any topic. And probably surprisingly more so than most people give me credit for, because they see that, you know, I'm this gun nut, and I'm a contrarian. I like to argue with people. Uh, and I don't let people get away with crap. But in the sci-fi world right now, um, people are very um, divided, and it's gotten to the point where people on one side of the aisle aren't allowed to speak because as soon as they do, they're going to get attacked and hounded and maliciously persecuted and by a bunch of angry, easily outraged crybabies. <laughs> so, uh, Much like a bunch of villagers with torches and pitchforks, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like Frank, since they're chasing me around with the, the torches here, but at the same way, I don't care. Uh, and I'm at a point in my career where I, you know, I've got a really good, solid fan base, and I'm doing well. So I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell 
my honest opinion. I'm going to back them up. I'm going to argue. I'm going to debate my position. I'm going to say what I truly believe in. And if people don't like that, that's too bad. Um, what I've seen is um, they just make stuff up about me, um, pretty crazy stuff. But you'll notice very seldom they have any actual sites or quotes, which is funny for a guy who's been blogging for, like, you know, years and years and years of thousands of articles about politics. They'd be able to cite some of these things. But they don't. They just say, well, he believes this, which is usually not anywhere close to what I believe, but they throw it out there as just this kind of tool of character assassination, make the other side shut up. And, and my thing is I truly believe in free speech. I believe in the freedom of speech, even speech I don't like, even speech I disagree with. And I, I believe that the answer to bad speech is more speech. It, it's argument. It's never, ever dismissing people or shutting down debate. If, if your tactic is to shut the other side up, then I'm against you. And, and I, I don't like bullies. And so if I see people who, who their whole thing is to dismiss the other side or silence people, then I'm, then I'm going to be against them and I'm going to get them angry at me and I'm going to have them expose their, you know, I'm, I'm going to get them mad and they're going to expose themselves to the world. And I have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Well, for for you... inspiring writers, I don't recommend that as a, a <laughs> tactic. Um, but uh, for me, it works. So that's that's why I do. That's why I do what I do. Well, I would certainly caution anybody from verbally picking on Larry Correa <laughs> because you you might not know what you're in for. It will be a Frank's like response, I would say. No, I just say I like to argue. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a former auditor, and uh, when you're an auditor, it's all about facts and it's all about reality and numbers and making. You know, finding why things are the way they are and proving them. It's not about feeling. Absolutely. And so if you come to me with an argument, it's just feelings and like, well, let's go. I mean, I did that for a career. So that's just kind of how I'm wired. And that I, I didn't, I certainly don't want to imply that there's any, ever any ad hominem attack in your blog. I mean, you are, you're absolutely about the reasoning behind positions and, and ferreting out, um, you know, Idiocy. I, I will go ad hominem. I, I do insult people, but usually, here's the thing: if somebody shows up and they say, "Well, you're a racist teabagger," now now engage me. It's like mm -hmm. what? <laughs> I mean, if if you if you come in raising you know you know waving the red flag, don't be surprised when the bull charges you. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I will re I will return like with like, um, and I can be rather mean. And I get paid to write, so I type very fast. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, that's just kind of how I roll. Yeah. And, you know, the fans enjoy it. So uh, it works. It works for me. The blog is well-trafficked. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on now, fiction-wise, at the moment? I understand you may have, be, have done some collaborating once again here. Well, um, I've got um, – uh, there is a project plan. It's, the hard part there is just when we've both been really busy uh, collaboration between me and John Ringo. Um, we've actually had this under contract for a couple of years. It's just we've both been uh, pretty swamped turning out lots of books during that time. But uh, we've got a, a pretty cool story we want to tell. Uh, we've talked about it several times. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic steampunk um, story. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. That is – um, we just got to find the time to do it is a thing. Um, the one I'm working on right now, uh, because I just wrapped up the Grimoire series, it was a trilogy, uh, Warbound was the last one of that, that's out. So I needed to get started on my next solo trilogy, um, which is actually an epic fantasy. And that's what I've been working on for the last couple months. And um, I'm, well, let's see, I'm about a third of the way through the first book right now. Um, it's just this big, I mean, I've never done an actual straight-up heroic or epic fantasy before. I mean, everything else has been urban fantasy or alternate history. This is a uh, fantasy world of my creation. Uh, I'm actually having a lot of fun with this one, and I think it's pretty darn good. I'm pretty proud of it. I don't have, a, I don't have an official title yet because I actually always wait for the last minute on titles because I'm, I'm terrible at titles. <laughs> and uh, In fact, most of my books, I think Tony Weisskopf has changed the title. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember our uh, our uh, discussion on Spellbound <laughs> in that regard. Oh yeah, I'm just I'm bad at it. So it doesn't have a title right now. I you know the file is called Epic Fantasy. Uh, well, what I mean, I don't want you to give anything away, but uh, is your main character uh, who is he or she? 
Okay, well, well, okay, this is kind of fun. Uh, my main character, best way to describe him, is a cross between um, George Washington, Genghis Khan, and the Punisher. So, um, okay, let me give you a little little backstory here. Uh, basically, the idea behind this trope, the, the idea behind this fantasy, as you're seeing in the, a common trope of fantasy novels, is that you know some big monster, some big threat to the world arises, a hero defeats it. And then there's always a prophecy that the monster will come again and a descendant of this great hero will defeat, will be the one to rise up and defeat it. And then when you get to the actual story, it's, you know, the assistant pig farmer's son has to go on a quest to become the great hero, okay? Here's the thing. That's not human nature. In real life, if you had somebody who, you know, defeated the monster and there was a prophecy that his descendant will, in a thousand years, save, is the only person that can save the world, that guy's not going to have one kid. He's going to have 60 kids. He's going to have 100 wives. And his kids are going to have 100 wives. And within a few generations, they're going to be the house of Sod. And that's human nature. If you have it that some bloodline is that vital for the survival of, of, your, of your people, you're going to protect that bloodline, and you're going to make that bloodline important. So what I did in this fantasy world is we had that basic idea. Um, great hero rose up. Um, you know, and then, so what they did is each of his kids had hundreds of wives, and as time went on, they became more and more corrupt and, and bigger and badder, and the society was all about them. And then eventually, you know, a couple hundred years in, people had apostatized from their religion and no longer understood the, the truth of uh, why things were the way they were. The, the priesthood just existed to make these people more powerful. They developed a, ca a brutal caste system that I based upon, um, you know, Maharaja India, and... Um, what happens is these people get cast down. They get uh, destroyed in a violent military coup. And uh, now I'm picking this up several hundred years later in this in this world when the bad things are starting to happen again. Um, only the the people that were prophesied to save them all got you know executed and thrown down into slavery because of their evil and their corruption and their pride. Um, so that's kind of what I, I'm working on right now, and uh, having a lot of fun with it. And the reason I say George Washington is because this is kind of the, the, the founder. Um, and I'm working with a, like, a very, like I said, a very brutal uh, caste system type of society. Does and it, uh, uh, it, a lot of fun with it, actually. Got a lot of swords? Or are we in uh, gunpowder? Um, Pre-gunpowder? Actually, I, because um, one of the things I did, this is actually kind of fun, um, one of the things I did is, you know, usually fantasy novels tend to be very religious. They tend to have a very, you know, strong religious element. But one of the things I did is because they cast down the people that had the religion. Um, religion is banned, and I'm set this up in kind of a secular society where law and science are what's in charge. Well, in like most countries in real life, they have that. They have gun control, and they have weapon control. And we have actually invented gunpowder. Gunpowder has been invented but it is extremely strictly uh, legally regulated uh, as if it's witchcraft. Um, it's, it's prosecutable the same as, like, black magic, which is really, really bad in this world. Um, so, yes, guns do exist, <laughs> but, um, you know, not without much, much, much complication. Um, and so I set up this secular state where basically they, have, they still have religion, except the religion is about the law. And they have this kind of giant Mandarin bureaucracy that regulates everything. Yeah, they, it, so a lot of sword fighting. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of the main things of the, of the series is actually a magic sword, um, but th there's a reason behind this. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I had to um, do some studying because I'm a gun expert, not a sword expert. And believe me, I will have plenty of experts in bladed weapons read my, read my fight scenes and give me good feedback to make sure I don't screw those up. Um, Tony gave me Hank Reinhardt's, all Hank Reinhardt's books, you know, Book of the Sword, Book of Knives, so that I don't screw my swords up. <laughs> yeah, sure. We, and those are... He's an expert on the topic. Absolutely. Um, I've got one of Hank's swords sitting on my desk, by the way. It's a beautiful, uh, <laughs> beautiful piece, big broadsword. Cool. Oh, man, yeah, that guy, I, that was... Uh, uh, I read Book of the Sword again recently in prep for this, and man, that is such a good book. I, I learned so much from that. Um, that guy really knew his stuff. Uh, just fascinating. And little little things I was able to take away to you know make the story more interesting. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely using those because when your editor is a knife nut and a knife expert, you can't really, you can't really screw your knives up. I, uh, I screwed up a knife fight in Dead Six, and boy, Tony just, she's like, no, that is not how you would do it. I was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I would change that. I would change that right away. And I did, I did something, something based upon watching movies as opposed to real life. Uh, so, you know, rookie mistake on that one. So what about the Monster Hunter series? Uh, what what do you think is next there? Um, I, there are a lot more planned in that series. I've got uh, the next book goes back to Owen, uh, the main character. Uh, that one I, I do not, once again, don't have a title for it yet. I kind of set up a little bit about what it's about during Monster Hunter Nemesis. You get some clues kind of at the end there as to who the antagonists are. Um, I, I referred a lot to the Fey in the Monster Hunter universe, which are kind of your old European uh, uh, creatures of myth and, you know, fairy stuff. And I, I, I get it a little bit that the Wild Hunt is involved. I can reveal that in the end of Monster Hunter Nemesis. So that's kind of what we're up against in most... Uh, well, I don't have... can't say because that's probably not the title. Never mind. <laughs> but the, uh, the next book is back to Owen. And then uh, there are several more Monster Hunter novels planned. I do have an end in mind for the series. I do have a goal I'm working towards. There is an, an overall overarching Owen Pitt storyline that we've been setting up for several books now. Uh, we've kind of started getting into that more, and it'll just kind of ramp up to the end. Don't have an actual count yet um, because I keep having ideas. <laughs> and so as long as I keep having good ideas that I want to write books about, uh, so I'm not, I don't want to... You know, I don't want to pigeonhole myself in here and say oh, this is how many there's going to be, um, but there there is an overarching storyline that we're working towards. So, um, but really excited to write the next Monster Hunter level because it's pretty cool. And then when I'm going to go on book tour for Monster Hunter Nemesis, people just hound me about the next book. So uh, I'm really limited on what I can tell them, you know. So I am I am actually very excited to start getting that one down on paper, but. Uh, so the Epic Fantasy is up next, and then after that, basically, is whatever Tony tells me to do. Um, <laughs> because we still have the third Dead Six novel. Uh, Mike Cooper is working on a space opera right now that he sold the band. And uh, when he's done with that, then we're going to concentrate on, on, on the third, Dead, third and final Dead Six novel. Um, so, yeah, I've got a lot of irons in the fire, and I just kind of juggle my time. And, <laughs> and I write a lot, and I just keep trying to turn them out so i i just do what she tells me <laughs> yeah well we're glad you do the book we're talking about now is uh and out now is monster hunter nemesis it's book five in the monster hunter series by larry korea and yeah it's out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere larry thanks so much for taking time to talk with us oh my pleasure tony anytime and now here is part 17 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but this is an America that's been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity which Jake is very good at. Now, after fighting a magical warrior from an Asian empire and a mob hitman, Jake has been stitched back together and magically healed. He finds himself on a westbound train, where he is about to hear the full spiel on behind-the-scenes magic from his rescuers as they angle for Jake to join their side of a mighty struggle against evil. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 17 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Western Colorado The dining car was nearly empty, 
Sullivan grunted politely as the waiter dropped off his third thick steak. Then he went to town, carving the beef into huge triangles and hungrily gulping them down. Oh, yeah, that's better, he mumbled. To him, magic was almost like physical exercise, and running his power dry always left him exhausted and famished. Heinrich Koenig and Daniel Garrett watched how much he consumed in amazement. The bookish Garrett pulled out a pack of smokes and offered them to his companions. The German turned him down, but Sullivan never turned down anything free, took one and stuck it behind his ear for later. They had procured clothing for Sullivan at the last stop. He would have to get it tailored later, as no one made clothing sufficient to fit his shoulders and arms, but Sullivan was forced to admit that this was now the nicest suit that he owned. The bandages were thick and itchy under his new white shirt. Once Dr. Rosenstein had decided that Sullivan wasn't going to die on him, he had gotten off in Denver to catch a flight back to his practice. So, about this job, I'm listening. Garrett lit up his smoke and leaned back in his booth. So, Sullivan, where do you think magic comes from? Well, that's an odd question, Sullivan answered, still chewing. The best scientists in the world don't know that. How should I? I'm just a poor, dumb old happy Mr. Garrett. His voice dripped sarcasm like the rare steak-dripped juice. Call me Dan, and we both know you know more than you let on. Sullivan wiped his mouth on a napkin. The first documented case of powers occurred in 1849. A Chinaman in California who could bend steel rails with his hands. Newspaper attention brought in some scientists, and the rest is history. And Dr. Spangler's research indicates that there may have been isolated individuals in rural communities as early as the late 1830s, but those were usually hushed up or run off by the superstitious. Dr. Kelser from the University of Berlin claimed to have proof of one in 1818, but I think his methodology was flawed, and he was a quack. You know your history, Heinrich said. I read a book once. In reality, his tiny apartment was filled with them, and he'd visited every university library he could. He could devour a thick book faster than most educated men could get through the daily paper, and he never forgot any of it. People tended to equate well-spoken with well-read, but that was a mistake with Jake Sullivan. I didn't even have pictures. Garrett smiled. You evaded my question rather nicely. Do you know where magic comes from? I can only guess, Sullivan answered. Some folks say it's hereditary, but you can have two parents with powers, and there's no guarantee their kids get anything. You can have lots of cases where the same power seems to run in a family. Those eugenicist assholes have been tinkering with that for generations, trying to breed powers, and they've still got nothing. Rumor is that the Japs are heavy into this, even doing some scary medical procedures to the people they conquer to try and make more actives. I can tell you that the Soviets are doing it as well, Heinrich said. I've seen things with my own eyes that you would not believe. Cog science creating terrors beyond your wildest imaginings. Disgusting, Sullivan agreed. So you don't like eugenics? Garrett was curious. We're people, not horses. Agreed, Heinrich said, taking a drink from his coffee. There was a movement back home that espoused that sort of thing. Luckily, their crazy leader, some washed-up painter, got the firing squad. Good riddance. So if it isn't from... Garrett paused, trying to think of the proper word. Mandelian genetics, Sullivan said, pointing his fork at Heinrich. Your people produce some clever monks. Actually, he was Austrian, Heinrich replied. Close enough. So, if it isn't genetics, you're saying that it must come from God? Sullivan shrugged. Beats me. I don't get real religious in my line of work. 
Sure, I believe in God, but I don't think magic is his gift to man to make the world a better place or any of that Father Coughlin radio show nonsense. If it was a gift from God, I think he'd be a little more picky in who he gave it to. I doubt God gave the Kaiser the ability to trap the spirits of men inside bodies that should have died ten times over until they went crazy with a taste for human flesh and damn Teutonic zombies. Sullivan looked over at Heinrich. No offense. None taken. Heinrich gave a long sigh. His tone indicated that he had some familiarity with the Kaiser's necromancy. Please do not discuss them. Magic has revealed hell is a place, so perhaps magic can come from both God and the devil. Sullivan frowned. Garrett was fishing now, testing him. He concentrated, but couldn't sense any intrusion into his mind. The mouth was just getting a feel for his beliefs, not trying to influence him, so Sullivan answered truthfully. Finders and summoners have the power to bring in beings from other worlds to do their bidding. And just because the easiest one to get to happens to look a lot like what we think of as hell doesn't mean that it is. I've dealt with demons. Both sides were using them in the war, but they were basically really smart monkeys. The summoned aren't bright enough to be the fallen angels from the Bible. Very good, Garrett said, letting out a puff of smoke. The personal beliefs of the summoner tend to influence the form that the summoned appear in, and they're not bright enough to tell us about their home. Since ones conjured by Westerners tend to look like devils or angels, people tend to make assumptions. So do you at least have a theory as to where power comes from? Sullivan chewed his last bite of steak, thinking, Oh, I do. Don't mean I'm right or that I can prove it. I think magic is a force. I don't know from where. I don't know if it is alive or if it's intelligent, but it picks people here and attaches itself to them. I can't make Heads or tails out of why it picks who it does, but some of us can touch a little piece of it, some more than others, and we can use that little bit to do something to influence the physical world. What we can do depends entirely on what little bit of the power we can personally reach. The other two shared a surprised look. Not bad, Heinrich said. You come up with this on your own? Yep. Sullivan didn't add that he'd figured out a whole lot more than that. As far as he knew, he was the only person who'd put together how a few different powers were related, and how he'd been able to stretch his into the adjoining areas a tiny bit, but that was his secret. It was time for the Grim Noir men to share some of theirs. Funny, I've been doing all the eating and the talking, and I still ain't got no more answers. What have I told you that we know the real history of magic? I wasn't born in Missouri, but I'd say show me, Dan. Mar Pacifica, California Francis stayed in the back of the room. He'd known General Pershing for most of his life. He was almost like a second father, especially since he'd done a much better job being an example of manhood than Francis's real father, and it pained him deeply to see the general in his current state. His body seemed to deteriorate a little more every day since he'd been cursed by the mysterious pale horse. Jane exhausted her powers on a daily basis fixing all of the new health problems, and even she had to admit that at this point Black Jack was living off of sheer determination alone. If they could just figure out who it was that had cursed their leader— then the Grim Noir would kill the wretched pale horse and break the spell. They all suspected that it must have happened during the Imperium's attack against their old headquarters. The general had fallen ill shortly after. A pale horse had to touch his victim to bind the curse, so it must have been during the chaos of the battle. They'd done everything they could over the last few years to track down the Imperium's agents, but even after assassinating everyone they could lay their hands on, they still hadn't found their pale horse. The general's hands were so paper-thin that sunlight could be seen through his skin. It was hard to believe that those were the same hands that had taught him how to throw a ball, how to ride a horse, how to shoot a gun. It won't be much longer now, 
Francis thought, then hated himself for thinking it. The girl, Faye, was showing the general her grandpa's treasure. Whatever it was had certainly gotten the attention of Lance Talon, and he wasn't a man who riled easily. Lance had told Mr. Browning what had been printed on the device, and the second-in-command had immediately said that they needed to take it directly to the general. The old gentleman, John Browning, had joined them. He stood on the other side of the bed, tall, regally thin, and extremely bald. Nearly eighty, his mind was still the sharpest amongst them. He studied the device with intelligent eyes, obviously worried by what he saw. So that meant that two of the most experienced American grim noir were distressed by whatever the presence of the device suggested. The general gestured with one palsied hand, and Mr. Browning lifted the small piece of metal, carefully reading the nameplate again. He let out his breath in a long, low whistle. I would be forced to say that this is the real thing, General. I was afraid of this, the general rasped. I told them that we should have destroyed the pieces when we had the chance. The fools thought we might need the weapon some day. Who else knows where the other pieces are hidden? The weakness of his voice made Francis cringe. Only the senior members of the society, Browning replied. The elders, of course, it was their order. Here? Only you, I, Mr. Talon. He nodded at Lance. And Mr. Garrett. We were all sworn to secrecy. The others that knew were lost in the last attack. Even the knights entrusted with the peace did not know the others' whereabouts. None of the junior members should know. The chairman has found out somehow. I feared this day would come. We thought them finding Jones was a coincidence that the Imperium ran into him on accident. He had the blueprints for the Geotel, but we thought they'd been burned. Lance was speaking. We've got to assume that the chairman has got the plans. I tried Christensen, but no response on his ring, and he don't have a phone. What's going on? Faye asked. What are y'all talking about? but the seniors were too involved in their discussion of mysterious devices and conspiracies to pay the young lady any mind. Francis caught himself staring at Faye, even though she wasn't his type. He was no stranger to the ladies. That's what happened when you grew up in a family with money to burn and a line of eligible women who wanted to marry into that kind of money. Then when he'd gone off to school, his father and grandfather had encouraged him to sow his wild oats and get such foolishness out of the way. He'd bedded half the lovelies in Boston, all of the reputable prostitutes, and still had plenty of time left over for drinking and gambling, but that was before he'd turned his attentions to the more serious business of saving the world and pissing off his family. In comparison to other girls, Faye seemed rather drab, with her simple clothes that only hid too skinny a figure, plain features, and a complete lack of refinement. At best, he'd consider her cute. She obviously came from poverty and a total lack of education, but something about her kept snagging his attention, and he couldn't put his finger on it. Maybe it was those strange gray eyes. Or perhaps it was her refreshing directness. Excuse me, you old mummy, Faye raised her voice. That's my gizmo you're pawing over. My grandpa died for it, and I came a long way to find out why. Browning and Pershing ceased speaking immediately. That's more like it. My apologies, the general whispered. Your grandfather was a very good man, and you have my condolences. We are members of the Grimoire Society, an organization that stands against the darkest magics. He was once a member and helped in one of our gravest missions. Browning said. This item you brought here is a part of the most destructive weapon ever created by the hand of man, and in the summer of 1908 we stopped it from being fired on the United States. Thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, would have perished. 
And now, if you let the grown-ups finish talking, we've got to figure out how to keep the evilest bastard in the world from putting it back together and killing us all, Lance finished. So shush! That was part 17 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a new constellation in the shape of a turbaw palm squeezer and formed from the exploded remains of a Lovecraftian old one in thanks and praise to Larry Correa, author of Monster Hunter Nemesis. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. Keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.